The scripture reading for tonight comes from the book of Luke, chapter 15, verses 11 through 32. And Jesus said, There was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that, fit, that falls to me. And he divided his living between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took his journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in loose living. And when he had spent everything, a great famine arose in that country, and he began to be in want. So he went and joined himself to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would gladly have fed on, on the pods that the swine ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have bread enough to spare, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was yet at a distance, his father saw him and had compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet, and bring the fatted calf and kill it, and let us eat and make merry. For this my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to make merry. Now his elder son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what this meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fatted calf, because he has received him safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Lo, these many years I have served you. And I never disobeyed your command, yet you never gave me a kid that I might make merry with my friends. But when the son of yours came who has devoured your living with harlots, you killed for him the fatted calf. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to make merry and be glad. For this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and found. The word of the Lord. His brother was laying on the grimy floor of the shelter, clearly in some half-sleep, half-conscious kind of nightmare, his lips moving, mumbling about some young goat, about working like a slave, saying, I'm lost. His lips moved and his legs made small bicycling movements, while his arm hugged a dirty, small backpack tightly against his body. They'd sent for him because his brother had refused to leave. 
and hadn't paid for months. They told him they couldn't even get him to stand upright to walk him out and didn't really feel right about carrying him and dumping him outside the door. He approached his brother and knelt down next to him. He put his right hand on his shoulder, shook him gently, and then patted his sweat-soaked, matted hair. He leaned in close to his ear and whispered gently, Brother, come home. Come home. I don't know why, but throughout this liturgical year, which you know we've been doing, if you've been here a while, uh, this liturgical year where we're retelling children's Bible stories and reconsidering them as adults, during this time I felt a, like a little uncomfortable, I guess you could say, about doing like a direct critical reading of a particular children's Bible story. You know, like going through a particular children's Bible story page for page and I dissecting it. I don't know, I feel like somehow it's maybe cheating or just not cool because I want to respect the sincerity of the authors of that book. And I want to respect the sincerity of their impulse in spite of what seems like them taking their theological cues from capitalist culture, America circa 1959. And I like that they respect the biblical texts. They do that. I give them kudos, if one, I don't know how you do it, but I give them kudos for their love of the biblical text. I just think sometimes when they're hugging it, maybe they squeeze too tight. That being said, in spite of my reluctance, I've clearly done this before, um, and with a preamble like this, I'm sure you've already figured out that I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it. Because this children's book, this particular children's book, which was published in 1964, has informed so many people's interpretation of this text. This text, of course, is what Sonia just read, Luke 15, 11 through 34, and which is nearly universally known as the parable of the prodigal son. Prodigal which I must confess is not a word I've ever heard used in association with anything else or anybody else but this son. But prodigal, from the Latin, can mean lavish. It can mean one who spends money lavishly, wastefully, wasting. Or it can mean lavish literally bounteous, as in a composer who is prodigal with his talents. The title of this story is not The Prodigal Son. It's The Boy Who Ran Away. The Boy Who Ran Away. And I promise you I'm not going to read this entire book to you up here, but I do want to point out a few selected passages which I believe are important for understanding the interpreter's central concerns. So you see here, there once was a family with two sons. The older son did what needed doing. The younger son did what he liked. All right, I need to just stop right there, just right at the beginning, okay? The older son that did what needed doing and I'm saying doing because it fits the rhyme scene better. 
um, did what needed to do, and the other one did what he liked. The implication being that the other one did not like what he was doing. And the younger one, what he liked doing did not include anything that needed being done. What needs doing and what people like doing are not the same. This seems like a pragmatic, problematic worldview from the start. One is left with either doing, what, uh, doing what's needed doing in a sad, frustration, frustrated, eventually bitter march to death, or one can do what one likes, leaving the basic tasks, jobs, and chores necessary to maintain society to fall by the wayside until everything collapses and the world decays in a Mad Maxian, Mad Maxian anarchy. Now, before I go on to my comments here, I need to at least address the first interpretation we get of the text. And that is how the artist renders the one who did what he liked. The one who did what he liked here, first of all, the younger one, he uh, has a nose that is turned up sharply pointed, not anybody else does in this, uh, in this book. His uh, eyebrows are peaked in a sinister way. He has red hair, which from the Middle Ages to the middle of the 20th century implied an association with the devil, and specifically sexual perversity with the devil. Furthermore, he's got this kind of um, proto-hipster, mustacheless goatee that has, makes him look like he has that eternal smirk on his face. And then, his toga is V-neck. He's got a V-neck toga. Like, did they have Abercrombie and Fitch back then? He's made to look like some mean douchebag frat boy in a John Hughes movie who inevitably will lose his cheerleader girlfriend to the protagonist. Now that you have his character straight, let's uh, look at how this story goes on. So the narrator tells us, you know, that he did not, after this, that he did not want to be part of his family. And that um, in order to do what one likes, one needs money. One needs money, so he got an idea to go to his father and say, give me my portion of the estate. I want half the family's money. And so the father agrees to do it. And then we have this great image here of the father and the son. Um, the two sons kneeled before a pile of money, as if in worship, as if possessed by it. Except the father is looking up to the reader, which saying only I can imagine, oy vey. This whole story has a weird focus on money. Weird focus on money. And I don't find that in the Gospel of Luke here, this thing about money. The boy runs away with the money. He gets the money. He runs away with the money. And he, it said here, he did with the money what he liked. He did what he liked with the money. And then he did not spend it, the money, wisely. You can see here he's all dancing around. I guess that's not spending the money wisely. I don't know if this is money in the air or what. 
And pretty soon his money was all gone, it tells us. And then he wondered why people didn't like him anymore. That's what it says. <laughs> we all know, because the answer is implied, because he doesn't have any more money. Yeah. And all this part is not in the story. It's not in the story. He has to beg from people for money, but they want they, people. He has no money left to give any of them. He didn't spend it wisely. He ran out of money, and they didn't like him anymore because he didn't have the money. It's like this whole thing is a sin against money. It's a sin against money that his actual worth is his actual worth and his ability to properly invest and manage his money. Like the crux of the story is like this young man who doesn't know how to manage money. That's the sin. So he goes out and he gets a job and the only thing available is feeding the pigs and you know, he gets there and even uh, eats the pigs food, which is not in the biblical text either. And um, he says to himself, I set out to do what I like. And now I'm doing this. Is this what I like? Evidently the answer is no. He says that his father's servants eat better than this. And so I'll go back and I'll confess my sins to my father and I'll say, take me back as a slave, not as one of your sons. So he goes back and we know this famously. He goes back and he is going to confess to his father and say, please, please, could you take me back? And uh, his father, before he sees them, rushes to him and says, you know, my son was lost and now he's found. Here he is. He embraces him and he runs and he, say, he yells, embraces him and says to his um, servant, run and get him a great cloak that he can wear so we can celebrate. I guess it's not the point, but I can't help pointing out that the only black guy in the whole book is the servant who goes against the coat. But um, he runs and they throw a big party and hire what looks like a, uh, I don't know, renaissance band from, I don't know, England at the time. Um, so they go out there, yeah. And uh, there's a big thing. His brother is so upset asking, you know, why? Did I never get a party? Why did you never kill a young goat for me? I have stayed here this whole time. And his father says, no, look, can you not see that God loves him and that we love him and he has been lost and now he's returned to us? And uh, why don't you come into the party and let us all celebrate the family being back together? At which point they shake hands and go into a Greek temple. So it's, yes, it's striking, the images and the whole of the point of the book, you know. And then, of course, in every arch book, they always end it with the, um, the Dear Parents section. And the Dear Parents section is a note from the editors in which they instruct the parents or the Sunday school teachers as to the meaning of um, the biblical story and how most effectively to explain it to the wide-eyed, fragile-souled, at-risk-of-being-bad children in front of them. Dear parents, the parable of the boy who ran away from home was told by Jesus to explain and defend his receiving scoundrels and bad women. 
He took them in without grudge or reproach and feasted with them. The parable is also an appeal to members of God's family who would never run away, but had been faithfully to serve and obey Jesus' Father, God, all the years to receive the returning sinner. You see, it's those children who never would run away or disobey God's command who need to receive the returning sinner. Then it says, can you help your child think of God as a kind and loving father and help him not to shut out the other children who may not be as good as them, but who um, may, might like to make good or try to be better? So I guess the moral of this story, the good news found here, the good news here is, um, well, sometimes the whole thing, it's put that God, God forgives the one who runs away, right? No matter how great a sin, God will forgive the one who runs away. No matter how dirty you get, God will take you back. And if God will take the boy who ran away back, no matter how dirty he is, then you, wide-eyed, young, developing mind, vulnerable, souled, sweet little Sunday school child, you should take back the boy no matter how dirty he is. Welcome the sinner, no matter how great the sin, as long as he wants to be better. So this seems to me a very different message than God loves everyone, and so you should love everyone. Which is a message, I think, that that wide-eyed, uh, young, vulnerable soul, Buster Brown-wearing precious child, this message of God loves everyone, you should love everyone. That is the kind of message that young Sunday school student could grasp. I think even, like, just know by instinct. But this message is different, more nuanced. It says that you, youngster, here, you're the good kids. You're the one who would never run away, never disobey your father's command, you aren't like the scoundrels or the bad women. They're the other people. They're the boy who ran away. They're the bad ones. So you need, no matter how dirty, bad, and offensive they are, you need to welcome them in. This misinterpretation is pragmatic, problematic, obviously, in many ways. I mean, because think of that poor, poor, poor Sunday school kid sitting there. Who knows in his heart that he's the bad one? Who knows that he did the bad things and he liked it? And now he has learned from his teacher in Sunday school never to tell anybody, to hide who he is, to hide that desire to do that bad thing. He learns how to hide himself and to pretend to be a good kid because that's what ex is expected of him. And furthermore, it also tells these youngsters, precious little souls and minds, that the bad people are the other people. Not you, not us. You can't be. They are the bad people. And if the other people are the ones that do the bad things, just other people just means that they're bad, simply by the fact that they're other people. Praise Jesus.
course, this is not the only way of reading this text. We can just turn back to the beginning of the book. And it just simply says that there is a man who has two sons, and the younger son said to his father, Give me my share of the property, so the parts that belongs to me. And so the father divided the property between them and gave half to the younger son and half to the older son. A few days later, the younger son gathered all that he had and traveled to a different country. The younger son didn't tell his father what he wanted the money for. You kind of get the impression over the years and through this interpretation that he like was going, I'm going to take your money. I'm going to spend it badly. No, he just said, I want my money. And the father did not say, do you have a plan? Do you have a business plan? What is the objective here? He just gave him the money. And a few days later, a few days later, the text says, the boy did not run away. He did not disappear in the night. He's there for a couple days. He's making plans. He's packing. He's going. His father maybe even said to him, where will you go? And perhaps he said, I can't tell you. I just know I need to go. Now, in first century Palestine, a son inherits the first son inherits half the property, and the second son inherits a quarter of the property. I'm sorry, three quarters the first son inherits, and the second son inherits one quarter of the property. But this father didn't divide it that way. It says that he divided it in half. He gave a whole other quarter share to the younger son who was going off, leaving him. Why does he do that? Maybe he's worried about his son and thinks his son might need more money. So the text says, he traveled to a distant country and there he squandered his property with dissolute living. Or some translations say loose living or some translations say foolish living. Whatever, he went there. He didn't make good choices. He ran out of money. And when the money ran out, it coincided with a famine that occurred. And the only way he could feed himself was getting this job feeding pigs. And when it came to that, he figured, I think I made a big mistake. And he figured it was time to go home. This story is about transgressing boundaries transgressing social boundaries. For a father to leave his son is a shame in first century Palestine. For a son to leave Israel and travel to a distant land is to reject his people. For a Jewish son to wallow with the pigs is to disrespect his religion's laws. Now certainly, this is not the first youngster, and certainly won't be the last, this young adult who desires to transgress social boundaries, to transgress, to act against everything your father or your family or your church stood for. I kind of think this is why this story is so popular, because it's a pretty universal story. You have to challenge that. You have to reject it. You have to transgress these boundaries so you can come back to them, understand them, figure out who you are in their context. 
People always read the story that the prodigal son, at the end, ran out of options. And in spite of his horrid, wretched sinfulness, just crawled back to his father, hoping against hope that he would take him in just as a servant. The way I read the story, he has no doubt in his mind that his father will take him back. That's why he decides to go. He knew he can go back. Always he can go back. He left knowing that his father loved him. He left knowing that his father would always take him back. That's what gave him the courage to go and transgress those boundaries. So when he comes back, and he comes back humbled, and he comes back confessing to his father, I made a big mistake. You don't even take me back as your son. He's confessing, he's humble. Even just take me back as a slave. He takes responsibility for what he did. And when he comes home, his father sees him, and he's starting to talk. He says, I have sinned against you, and I have sinned against God. Nowhere ever does the father say, or Jesus telling the parable, that he sinned against God, or that he sinned against the Father, that's his reading of the situation. His Father doesn't even acknowledge that. His Father doesn't forgive him. He doesn't say, oh, you did, I forgive you, and now I take you back. No speaking of sin or forgiveness or whatever. It's just joy. It's just pure joy at seeing the son he loves come back again. Come back into the family. There's no bringing him back into the family in spite of what he did in spite of how bad he is. The father's not embracing him when he, only after he forgives him. The only thing, sin is not at issue. Joy is the issue here. Bringing his son back into the fold. Now the brother, he has an issue. He has another issue altogether. When he hears about the party, he refuses to go in. So his father comes out and pleads to him. He says, come and celebrate the return of your brother, he who was lost, and now he's returned. And the older brother said, how can you give him this party? I never left you. I worked all these years like a slave for you. And now you don't even give me a small goat for me and my friends. You never gave me a party while he went out and devoured your money with prostitutes? With prostitutes? The older brother is the only one that's talking about prostitutes. Doesn't say that anywhere else. The older brother is the one who brings up the prostitutes. It doesn't say that in the text that he was doing this. He was making foolish choices, but we don't know who they are. Yeah, his older brother clearly does not even see himself as part of this family that this brother had returned to. In the same way that the brother left, the old, younger brother left, this older brother has left this family. He refers to himself as a slave. He says, I've worked like a slave. That's who he sees himself as. He has given up his role as the firstborn, as a member of this family. He left the family in the same way the younger son did. I've worked like a slave, he says, and that's how he understands himself. And maybe both the older brother and the younger brother had the same impulse to transgress the boundaries that their father had set for them. 
that the culture had set for them, that the religion had set for them. And while the younger brother, the younger son, spoke of his desires, spoke his desires to his father, he told his father what he wanted to do. The older one hid his desire to transgress these boundaries. He retreated from his place in the family, and he hid his desires, repressed his desires. And his inability to express his desire eventually turned those desires into bitterness and to anger. Prodigal can mean lavish, as in one who gives lavishly. The one who carries the title of prodigal in this story is not the son. It's the father. The one that intends to be some, somehow analogous to God. The father gives lavishly. The son says, I want the money, I want to go. And he just, he gives him more than he asked for to go. I mean, this son, he says, how come you never gave me a party? How come you... He never wanted a party, this guy. He doesn't have any friends. He's in the basement fantasizing about prostitutes in a foreign land. He's trapped. He's alone. He is far away. He's lost. This is a story about confession and vulnerability. Confessing who you are, who you are and what your desires are, and being open to the people in your lives, to yourself, to God, and knowing that you can trust God to love you, not in spite of your failures. Those aren't at issue here, failures or sin or however you want to do it. The confession that God seeks is not of what you have done bad. The confession that God seeks is a confession of who you truly are. 